Hello, I'm Eric Huang. You're listening to Saint Podcast, a podcast that explores the always fascinating and often controversial lives of the saints. This is a history and culture podcast that traces the origins of morality tales of the saints or hagiographies through feminist and queer stories, ancient legends and lore, art history, and pop culture. This season of Saint Podcast is dedicated to mystics, saints who had transcendental experiences with the divine. Over the next eight episodes, we'll meet saints who had prophetic visions of the future. We'll explore the legend of a nun who suffered from transverberation, literally a burning arrow of love that pierced her heart and entrails, and a peasant whose heavenly visions predicted victory as a warrior. Episode four in the Mystic series is about a saint who was born in the year 1181. He was a middle-class party boy who aspired to the upper-class sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle of an aristocrat, until a chance encounter with a leper changed him forever. His love for nature is commonly referenced, as are the bloody stigmata he bore on his body. The saint we know today, however. Bears superficial resemblance to the man pieced together from historical evidence. This is part two of the story of Saint Francis of Assisi, the wayward stigmatic. When we last saw Saint Francis at the end of part one, he had left behind the comfort and wealth of a middle-class upbringing to live a life of poverty. His message of peace and penance had found ardent support, however. In eleven young men who join his cause, the year is 1209. The prevalence of unsanctioned religious movements popping up all across Europe has made the church even more wary of communities like the one Francis has set up. At the urging of Bishop Guido, Francis travels to Rome with his eleven followers to petition Pope Innocent III for an endorsement of their lifestyle. And therefore, official protection by the church. This is a savvy move to ensure their survival. As an official religious movement backed by Rome, Francis and his followers would no longer be challenged and attacked by the general public. It'd be a crime to do so. The men elect Bernard of Quintavalle as their leader to decide the route and itinerary, and all twelve journey to Rome. It just so happens Bishop Guido is also in Rome. This is fortunate because it's unlikely the Pope would have met with Francis without Guido's presence. Though quite infamous in his local duchy, Francis is a nobody in the rest of Italy, not to mention Rome, the capital of Christendom. At any rate, Francis isn't granted the pleasure of meeting the Pope immediately. Cardinal John of Saint Paul is assigned to Francis to assess this strange poverello and find out what he really wants. The cardinal is an austere Benedictine monk known for his work subduing the Albigensians, a Cathar sect in southern France. Like most mainstream Christians, Cardinal John views the Cathar Christians as heretics. He's suspicious of Francis at first. The Pavarello's exhortations on living in poverty sound dangerously similar to the Cathar view that the material world is the realm of the devil. Despite initial reservations, hagiographies describe Cardinal John's high esteem of Francis upon their acquaintance. The cardinal not only sets up a meeting, but urges Pope Innocent III to agree to Francis's requests, 
Pope Innocent III is a compelling historic figure. Highly intelligent and sharp, but also temperamental and exacting, he's one of the most powerful medieval popes. The decretals or letters written by Pope Innocent form much of the canon law that the Catholic Church still adheres to today. His papacy is remembered for the consolidation of power against increasingly disobedient secular princes, crusades against so-called heretics like Muslims and Cathars, and somehow keeping the church united amidst a rising merchant class destabilizing the order, and the proliferation of unorthodox lay movements, like that of Francis and his brothers. Whilst Innocent III doesn't shy away from violent conflict, he's savvy enough to know it's a losing battle to fight everyone who deviates from the mainstream. So he makes saints out of a handful of religious laypersons revered by the public. And he reconciles with a religious organization known as the Humiliati, or Humiliati, in reference to their humiliation or suffering. Here's a tract written about the Humiliati by an unknown chronicler around the year 1180. At that time there were certain citizens of Lombard towns who lived at home with their families, chose a distinctive form of religious life, refrained from lies, oaths and lawsuits, were satisfied with plain clothing, and argued for the Catholic faith. They approached the Pope and besought him to confirm their way of life. This the Pope granted them, provided that they did all things humbly and decently, but he expressly forbade them to hold private meetings or to presume to preach in public. The Humiliati from Lombardy are tolerated by Pope Lucius III, five popes before Innocent III. Not long afterwards, they're excommunicated for disobeying the decrees they had agreed to follow. Pope Innocent reverses this and sanctions the religious lay order. It's with this in mind that the Pope grants Francis and his brothers an audience in 1209. Imagine how Francis and his eleven companions must have appeared to the aristocrat cardinals and officials when they shuffle into the lavish papal court without shoes, dressed in tattered rags, reeking of filth. Francis delivers a hastily composed document that's little more than the biblical passages he, Bernard, and Peter read at the church in Assisi just a year ago. The passages are allusions to their desire to live in poverty whilst preaching penance. According to the English chronicler Roger of Wendover, the Pope had this to say, Brother, go look among the pigs with whom you are more comparable than among your fellow human beings. Roll around in the mud with them and fulfil your office as preacher among them by handing on to them the rule that you have prepared. Francis takes Innocent's words literally. He finds a pig pen, then plops down with the pigs and rolls around. According to the legend of the three companions, Innocent doesn't insult Francis, but sends him away to prey on a more formal rule for his order. Francis does as he's told and receives a vision in which a wealthy king meets an impoverished and beautiful virgin in the desert. They fall in love, they marry, and have sons. Then, for some reason, the king leaves his family and returns to his palace. Over a decade passes. The sons grow up to be the most handsome men of the land. The mother reveals to her sons their true parentage and urges them to claim their place with their father. The king is overcome with joy at meeting his handsome sons. He moves them all to the palace, including his wife, where they live happily ever after.
Francis perceives at once that he is this impoverished woman. And like her and her sons, Francis and his brothers will be welcomed into the king's palace, a symbol of heaven. According to this same hagiography, Pope Innocent III also has a vision, a dream in which the church of St. John Lanterin is collapsing. The structure would have crumbled if not for the presence of a small, insignificant man who holds up the crumbling building with a shoulder. Upon waking, Pope Innocent recognizes the insignificant man as Francis. When Francis reappears before the Pope, either covered in pig filth or alternately with visions fresh in both men's minds, Innocent grants permission for the formation of a religious lay organization. Its members are allowed the privilege to live under a strict rule of poverty with no fixed abode, and allowed to preach their message of peace as long as they don't, like the humiliati, discuss matters of theology. Cardinal John is then appointed as liaison between the brothers and the papacy. Francis calls the new organization minoritas, or lesser brothers, a reference to their status as lowly men who, according to Francis, are, quote, simple and subject to all. In time, the lesser brothers would come to be known as the Friars Minor. It might seem odd that Pope Innocent III, the leader of perhaps the wealthiest state in Europe, would sanction a movement whose very existence is about the evils of amassing material wealth. But it's a very savvy move. For Innocent, welcoming the Friars Minor as an official order of the Church means they're now subject to his rule, under his control. For Francis, the blessing from the Pope, although only a verbal one, means protection for the Friars Minor. Protection from attacks by both the general public and from church officials as the movement's profile grows. But protection isn't given without compromise. The first one the friars make is new haircuts. All twelve men submit to the tonsure, that friar tuck hairstyle which officially marks every monk. Freshly shorn, the new friars minor wander home, preaching. News of the Pope's decision isn't widely known, and the Friars Minor are greeted with a usual derision. About 20 kilometers south of Assisi, Francis decides that it might be more effective to preach to the birds gathered in the trees instead of the scores of scornful people at every stop. So that's exactly what he does. Here's an account of what Francis says to the flock of doves, crows, and other birds gathered in the trees around them. My brother birds, you really ought to praise your creator lord and love him forever. He has given you feathers for clothing, wings for flight, and everything you need. God has made you noble among his creatures. He has given you a home in the pure air of heaven, and though you neither sow nor reap, he still protects and guides you, so that you have not a care in the world. According to this passage from Thomas of Celano, the birds rejoice upon hearing the sermon, chirping and flocking to Francis for a blessing before flying away. There are several St. Francis legends involving animals. He commands a flock of swallows to be quiet when their noise overpowers a sermon in a village called Alviano. He frees lambs from the slaughter, frees fish from nets and a rabbit from a trap. He rescues worms stranded on paths and urges beekeepers to reserve just a little bit of honey for the bees during winter. 
Francis even tames a ferocious wolf, terrorizing the town of Gubbio, transforming the wild animal into the town's pet and protector. For Francis, animals are a testament to the Christian God's love and power. They're gifts, as are the earth, the sun, the stars. This is perhaps best expressed by a hymn composed by St. Francis late in life. It's called Canticle of the Creatures, or Canticle of the Sun, a heartfelt homage to the natural world, which Francis says, quote, We use every day, and without which we cannot live. In the hymn, he addresses the sun and the moon as brother and sister. The wind and fire are also brothers. Water is sister water, and the earth is sister mother earth. Brother sun gives us light. Brother wind creates the varied weather on earth. Sister water is precious and pure, while sister mother earth sustains us all. Francis extols the simple pleasures and flower buds, singing birds, gentle summer weather. It's these simple pleasures from nature, from God, that now evoke in the Pavarello the best qualities of courtly romance and deeds of chivalry not the riches, glory, and power he used to pursue. An English-language translation of Canticle of the Creatures is on the St. Podcast website. The Friars Minor number around 40 by 1211. Numerous anecdotes from around this period demonstrate Francis's humility and thought processes. A former knight named Angelo Tarlati chases away thieves who come to Portiuncula to steal what little food the friars possess. When Francis learns of this, he urges Angelo to find the thieves and give them the food they obviously need so badly. Another time, a farmer becomes irritated at the friar's presence in his stables and makes a show of the difficulty he has settling in his donkey around the men. Rather than get upset or renegotiate with the farmer to stay another night, Francis urges the friars to leave at once. The Pavarello's focus on peace and maintaining a life devoid of ego is exemplified by diplomatic missions in which he reconciles political opponents by example. In 1225, the Podesta of Assisi, who is the civic leader of the city, comes into conflict with Bishop Guido, the spiritual head. Guido excommunicates the official, who retaliates by forbidding business transactions with the bishop. Francis, who's in the midst of composing his Canticle of the Creatures, adds the following stanza in response to the conflict. Praise be to you, my lord, for those who pardon for love of you, and support illnesses and tribulations. Happy those who will endure these in peace. For you, most high, they will be crowned. Francis invites the Podesta the bishop and their associates to Guido Bishop's palace, where the brothers sing the lines. Humbled by the simple words of forgiveness and love, the men reconcile. Hagiographies record many miracles performed by St. Francis. He's said to have turned water into wine to heal himself. Those who touch his filthy rags or eat loaves of bread blessed by him are healed of all ailments. A man named Gualfreduccio from Cita della Pave obtains a piece of rope Francis had used for a belt. Gualfreduccio dips the cord into water, which heals everyone who drinks it. Francis himself heals a disabled boy in Toscanella. 
he mends a woman's shriveled hand in Gubbio, and restores sight to a blind woman in Narni. The Pavarello also exorcises two demoniacs, people possessed by demons. And there are two instances in which St. Francis foretells the future. Two attested events greatly shape Francis's life and European history. One involves an aristocratic teenager named Chiara Ofreduccio, whom we know as St. Clair. The other is a week spent in the company of Al-Malik Al-Kamil, the Sultan of Egypt. Chiara, or Clare, is born in Assisi in 1193. She's one of Count Favarone Schifi's three daughters, the eldest. By all accounts, Clare is intelligent and strong-willed. She's drawn to religion from a very young age and rejects the young aristocrats her parents arranged to become her husband. When Claire sees Francis preach at the Church of San Rufino one day, she makes up her mind to join him. On the 20th of March, 1212, on Palm Sunday, Claire sneaks away from her parents' palazzo to Porti Uncula. Francis cuts her hair in a tonsure, covers it with a nun's veil, and exchanges her fine clothes for a sackcloth. The friars then escort Claire to a Benedictine convent about two miles away. When Claire's uncles track her down, she's moved to another convent, where they track her down again. Francis eventually installs her at San Damiano, the church where the crucifix spoke to him so many years ago. In the near future, Claire will establish a convent here and become abbess of a Franciscan order called the Poor Ladies, later renamed the Poor Clares. Francis's meeting with the Sultan of Egypt, Al-Malik Al-Kamil, a title which translates to the perfect king, is well attested in European Crusader chronicles and also in Islamic records. Pope Innocent III organizes the Fifth Crusade to recapture Jerusalem. The campaign is inspired by recent victories against Muslim forces in Iberia and galvanizes all of Christendom. It's within this context that Francis journeys to Egypt to meet the Sultan, with the singular goal of converting him to Christianity. After several aborted attempts to reach Muslim lands, Francis and a handful of other friars arrive at Damietta on the Nile Delta in the year 1219. On the 19th of August, a truce is declared after the Sultan roundly defeats a crusader attack. During the ceasefire, Francis takes brother Illuminato of Reti and crosses the border against the advice of all combatants and church prelates. Shouting, Sultan, Sultan, as he walks into Al-Kamil's camp, Egyptian soldiers arrest the friars. Every hagiographical source describes how magnanimous Al-Kamil is to the captive friars minor. Francis and the Sultan hold a debate. Which religion is better, Christianity or Islam? According to the Legenda Mayor, Francis proposes a trial by fire. Men of both faiths must walk through a burning pyre. The god of the true faith will no doubt protect his faithful servant. The sultan's scholars refuse. They all think Francis a madman. Undeterred, Francis announces he's happy to walk through the fire alone. The sultan stops him, impressed by the odd friar's spirit. 
Francis and Illuminato are Alchemil's guests for a week. They depart unsuccessful in their mission, but return impressed by the monarch's hospitality and intelligence. Friars Minor's travels to Muslim lands require permission from Rome. It's while at the papal court, securing the necessary approvals, that Francis meets a woman named Jacoba Settisoli, a 22-year-old widow who's the daughter of highest-ranking Roman nobility. The pair become quick friends over a series of short meetings in the summer of 1212. Jacoba is eager to help Francis and his friars care for the poor. Donald Spato's book describes this in more detail. After she offered several of her properties for the use of the friars and their works of charity, Frances, astonished by her outspoken manner, her sense of humour and her leadership qualities, traits then thought more suitable for a man, nicknamed her Brother Jacoba. Some hagiographies tell us Brother Jacoba becomes an important figure in Frances' life. And even though they only see each other a handful of times, She's said to be present at his deathbed in Porti Uncula. According to these same sources, Jacoba somehow knows Francis needs her, and arrives just as he's near death. Packed in her luggage is ash-gray cloth, which the brothers use for Francis's funeral shroud. She has wax, which they use to make candles, and scent from the incense she brings from Rome fills the chamber during the funeral rite. Brother Jacoba's very presence is a flagrant violation of a very strict rule that prohibits women from entering male spaces. Because Francis calls Jacoba Brother Jacoba, it seems as if all is forgiven. No one questions her presence. Francis has an unusual approach to gender. He often refers to himself as mother. Some of the brothers who live as hermits in the desert are also called mother. Their vocation is referred to as the life of Martha. Other hermits who accompany the mothers are called the sons. They lead a life of Mary. Martha and Mary are biblical figures, sisters to Lazarus whom Jesus resurrected from the dead. In the New Testament account, it's Mary who listens attentively to Jesus while he preaches. Martha listens as well, but does so whilst distracted by household chores and practical matters. So the brothers that leave Portiuncula to live an ascetic life in the desert are split into mothers who, like Martha, tend to practical needs and dealings with the outside world, whilst the sons, like Mary, focus solely on prayer and contemplation. Francis identifies with female figures. We already discussed the vision of the desert virgin. Francis sees himself in this woman. He also has a close relationship with Claire, who's essentially his protege, and he counts brother Jacoba as a close friend. Hagiographies mention another woman closely associated with St. Francis, the allegorical figure of Lady Poverty, who's a bride of Christ that Francis wishes to follow. The allegory is illuminated in a text written about a decade after Francis's death. It's called The Sacred Commerce of St. Francis and Lady Poverty. 
The unknown author describes Frances as Lady Poverty's suitor, who woos her whilst a rival, Greed, attempts in vain to sour their relationship. The artist Sassetta painted Lady Poverty as one of a female trinity, flanked by chastity and obedience. Francis places a ring on Poverty's finger, a symbol of his devotion to poverty itself. The three female figures then fly off to heaven, while Lady Poverty looks back at Francis and smiles. A link to this unusual work of art is on the St. Podcast website. The organization of the Friars Minor is very loose at first. Once Pope Innocent III accepts Francis's rule, and once membership of the order swells, formal structures have to be introduced. One of these is the general chapter. All religious orders are required by Rome to hold a yearly conference called a general chapter. The heads of the order gather to discuss the progress of their mission, logistical issues, changes to their practice. The goal is to draft and or revise a binding constitution. The general chapter of the Friars Minor is unusual because every single member is invited, not just the managers. Well, every single male member. The first recorded general chapter of the Friars Minor occurs in 1215 near Gubbio. About 300 are in attendance. The 1218 chapter at Porti Uncula numbers 1,000 friars. Only three years later, at the last chapter where every friar is invited, the attendance is 3,000. Like any conference, the general chapter isn't all work. Here is a first-hand account of the retreat-like atmosphere at the 1221 chapter by a friar minor named Jordan of Giano. A bishop celebrated the Mass, and it is believed that Francis read the Gospel and another brother the Epistle. Since the friars did not have a building to hold so many people, they camped out on the vast surrounding plain and slept in separate groups of 23 friars. At this chapter, the country folk took care to bring rapidly and in abundance bread and wine, for they were rejoicing at the reunion of so many brothers and of the return of St. Francis. Who could tell of the charity, patience, humility, obedience, the good fraternal humour that reigned among the brothers? In 1217, provinces are created to better administrate the friars' activities. This necessitates a hierarchy of brothers who administrate each province. They're called ministers, literally servants who minister to the others. By 1219, Francis can no longer personally see to the requests of every friar. It's the ministers who now oversee recruitment, the approval of preaching tours, as well as general HR and administrative issues. As ever, Francis refuses to be the leader in any way, and remains only an exemplar, or as André Voucher writes, a brother par excellence. That said, it's Francis's unique charisma that draws so many people to their cause, despite the fact that physically, he's quite forgettable. Thomas of Split, who meets Francis in 1222, says, He was wearing a nasty-looking habit. His whole bearing seemed unremarkable. His face was not handsome. Thomas of Celano lists the following distinguishing features. Small rather than tall. Round head. Medium-sized eyes. The neck skinny. It's when the Pavarello preaches that it becomes magnetic, irresistible. 
The same Thomas of Chilano who thought Francis's neck was skinny describes his voice as vibrant and soft, clear and sonorous, his lips fine and thin, out of which come a word soothing, burning, penetrating. As you can imagine, Francis's presence back in Italy is sorely missed when he travels to Egypt. In 2020, a prophet in the Holy Land known as the tongue that proclaims the truth delivers a message to Francis, who's still in Egypt. Come back, come back, for the order is troubled by the absence of Brother Francis. It is divided and in the process of destroying itself. Before leaving to join the Crusaders, Francis delegates two brothers as vicars to be his stand-ins. In Francis's absence, they pass statutes that extend the number of days the Friars Minor fast to align the practice with that of monks in other orders. Another brother, Philip the Tall, secures papal protection for Claire and her nuns. While John de Capella, one of the first eleven, organizes lepers into a religious order. None of these had Francis's assent, and the last two break an injunction against seeking any kind of privileges from the church. Before Francis returns to Assisi in 1220, he meets with a new pope, Honorius III. Pope Innocent had passed away, as had Cardinal John. Francis re-establishes contact with the papacy and petitions successfully for an annulment of the privileges granted to Philip the Tall and John de Capella. At this year's general chapter, Francis makes an announcement. He's decided to step away from his duties with the Friars Minor. He'll no longer be involved in the day-to-day and instead focus on his true calling, living as a poverello whilst preaching penance. Francis cites poor health as the reason for the abdication. The malaria has flared up again, and while in Egypt, Francis caught trachoma, a bacterial infection of the eyes, which will eventually make him blind. Francis's health is definitely on the decline, but it's likely the political pressures of the Friars Minor weigh more heavily on him than personal comfort. According to Thomas of Chilano, Francis has a dream in which a black hen struggles to appease multiple chicks simultaneously chirping for her attention. As usual, Francis sees himself as the mother, unable to protect her flock. Indeed, the nature of Francis's lesser brothers is very different in 1220. Aristocrats greatly outnumber other recruits, as do ordained priests. This second generation of friars no longer shares the same fervent religious purpose as the original eleven. Many novitiates enter the order as a means for salvation. It's a tactic to obtain a golden ticket to heaven rather than a religious desire to live an evangelical life of poverty for its own sake. Some of the latest recruits are also very, very young. A rhetoric teacher from Bologna named Bon Compagno of Siena writes about this worrying trend. A good number of friars minor are young people and children. Whence it happens that because of the fragility proper to their age, they are inclined, as nature would have it, to instability and lack of balance. These, indeed, have reached such a degree of foolishness that they wander about without any discernment throughout the cities, towns and remote places, while putting up with horrible and inhuman suffering which makes martyrs of them. Francis steps down, 
and appoints his old friend, Peter Catani, as his successor. Peter dies the following year, however, and Brother Elias takes over. In 1221, Francis meets Pope Honorius again to submit a formal rule for the order, which we now call the First Rule. The rule is rejected for being too radical. Francis delivers a revised rule the following year. After lengthy discussions and additional revisions by church scribes, Honorius accepts this watered-down version, known as the Second Rule. A cardinal named Ugolino is appointed to take the place of the deceased Cardinal John as the Friars Minor's new liaison. Although the Second Rule is a heavily edited version of the First Rule, the basic tenets of poverty are retained. Newly introduced are a basic hierarchical structure, as well as a process for accepting new recruits. The biggest change is Francis's requirement that all friars work. It's modified into a privilege granted to those who wish to undertake it. Many of the rules and regulations are aligned with standard monastic legislation to combat the most worrying and most frequent offenses. These include punishments for heresy and for the act of fornication, having sex with other men. Two years after the publication of the second rule finds Francis in a state of anxiety. The pace of change within the order accelerates. Francis is at odds with friars he no longer knows personally, many of whom he's never even met. But the problems are more than just personal. Groups of friars begin setting up permanent residences, monasteries, and Pope Honorius begins using their swelling ranks, influence, and wealth to enforce papal law, granting the friars minor the authority to excommunicate, conduct mass, hear confessions, and later, employ torture in witch trials and inquisitions. Whilst Francis is surely disappointed by all of this, the overriding sense is that the Pavarello recognizes he's no longer able to lead the friars. Times have changed. It's like the visionary founder of a startup who reluctantly steps aside when the company reaches a certain size, or when changing business requires a different management style and maybe a completely new strategy. Francis spends much of his time on religious retreats. His declining health also requires a lot of attention. Brother Rufino and Brother Leo, who's Francis's secretary, are nearly always at his side. The hagiographies mention a great temptation around this time, which Francis succeeds in subduing. The references are vague though, so we don't know what it is. Could it be vanity over the loss of control of the friar's minor? Did Francis attempt a coup? According to Thomas of Celano, Francis is delirious from malaria one day and shouts out whilst in a barely conscious haze, Who are these who have ripped my order and my brothers out of my hands? If I live until the general chapter, I will really show them what my will is. In 1224, Francis and Brother Leo retreat to a wilderness region in Tuscany called Laverna. It's here where Francis writes Praises of God, a hymn exalting the Christian Creator by highlighting virtues of charity, meekness, humility, sweetness. Francis would later give the hymn to Brother Leo, who would in turn entrust it to St. Clair's successor at the Poor Clares. 
It's also at Laverna, one September morning, that Francis receives the stigmata. There appeared to him a seraph in the beautiful figure of a crucified man, having his hands and feet extended as though on a cross, and clearly showing the face of Jesus Christ. Two wings met above his head, two covered the rest of his body to the feet, and two were spread as in flight. When the vision passed, the soul of Francis was afire with love, and on his body there appeared the wonderful impression of the wounds of our Lord Jesus Christ. An angel with six wings burns the wounds from Christ's crucifixion onto St. Francis's body. We covered this phenomenon in detail in the Halloween episode, Stigmata and the Bloody Wounds of the Crucifixion. Have a listen if you've not done so already. Francis doesn't tell anyone about the stigmata. It's only upon his death that the bloody marks are revealed. When an illness cuts short a preaching tour in February of 1225, Francis convalesces at San Damiano, where Claire and her nuns care for him. Worried that Francis's condition isn't improving, Brother Elias convinces the Pavarello to undergo medical procedures. The treatments include cauterizing the temples with a branding iron and puncturing the ears to release humors. They don't help at all. A feverish Francis vomits so much blood that all are convinced death is near. Miraculously, Francis recovers and writes the document, Testament. It's a memoir of sorts, a remembrance of himself and the life of poverty he chose. It's very critical of the evolution of the Friars Minor, and a last-ditch effort, it seems, to record his original vision of the Lesser Brothers. It's a very personal text, angry at times. The year is 1226. Francis is dying. He spends time at Bishop Guido's palace, where he finishes Canticle of the Creatures, and reconciles the bishop with the Podesta. His last few days are spent in a hut at Portiuncula, surrounded by those closest to him. He sings psalms the entire time, much to the scandal of some of the brothers, as it's customary to die in quiet prayer and contemplation. It seems the spirit of the wayward Francesco of his youth is still alive in the Pavarello. Francis ignores the criticisms to loudly sing praises till the very end. According to the Assisi compilation, this is when Brother Jacoba visits. Along with the other supplies, it's said that she brings him a gift, mostacciolo, a sweet almond cake, Francis's favorite, which he devours. Sometime during the night, between the 3rd and 4th of October, in the year 1226, Francis dies. Francis's corpse arrives in Assisi in a grand procession. It stops briefly at San Damiano for Claire and her nuns to say their goodbyes. The burial takes place at the Church of San Giorgio, Francis's childhood parish. But it wouldn't be Francis's final resting place. 
1253, the magnificent Basilica of St. Francis in Assisi would be consecrated. The body of the Pavarello is placed in the crypt, where it remains today. The Basilica is now an UNESCO World Heritage Site, and one of the mother churches or bases for the Franciscan Order. It's a beautiful building with many medieval masterpieces inside. But everything about it goes against Francis's rule of poverty and his wish for a simple burial at Portiuncula. Decades earlier, before the creation of the Basilica, Pope Gregory IX declares the Pavarello a saint on the 16th of July, 1228. Gregory is the name taken by Cardinal Ugolino, Francis's old advocate, who becomes Pope in 1227. It's Ugolino, Pope Gregory IX, who's responsible for the enduring legend of St. Francis. Ugolino has always been an admirer of the Pavarello. He's also another very savvy politician. Linking himself to the very popular figure of St. Francis, whom he himself just canonized, casts an aura of righteousness to the new pope's reign. The evolution of the Friars Minor into the Franciscan order of today takes centuries. Brother Elias regains control of the order in 1232 and leads the charge to build the Grand Basilica with the backing of Pope Gregory. With Elias at the helm, the Friars Minor become just another religious order with property and collective wealth. Francis's beloved brother Leo and Bernard of Quintavale lead unsuccessful bids to return the order to its roots of poverty. The infighting becomes so fierce that Bernard goes into hiding for fear of deadly reprisals from Elias. It's a regretful end to the first eleven brothers from the Golden Age. Factional disputes between those who wish to reinstate a strict interpretation of Francis's testament and reformers who promote a relaxed interpretation of poverty continue to plague the order for centuries. Numerous groups splinter off, particularly in the 14th century, and are subsequently accused of heresy, persecuted by the Inquisition. The 16th century Capuchins are notable as another movement wishing to return to a strict application of poverty. Their efforts to reform the Franciscan order are met with violent resistance, before finally being accepted as a more austere branch of a larger Franciscan organization. Today, all surviving factions are unified as one Franciscan order, comprised of three branches that very roughly mirror conservative, moderate, and liberal applications of Francis's testament. Like other monastic orders, the Franciscans have been deeply involved in the dark machinations of global politics, from inquisitions to colonial conquests and the slave trade. In the same way that the Franciscan order's purpose and shape has changed drastically through the centuries, the historic figure of St. Francis himself has been made over to be more acceptable. The most ubiquitous contemporary images of the Pavarello show a smiling monk cooing at birds or petting dogs. Francis's anti-capitalist views have been erased. If St. Francis were alive today, I don't think he would dwell on this. The Pavarello would simply continue to lead his life as an example, as he's always done, convincing a new generation that the pursuit of being rich and famous is a hollow one.
And really, St. Francis ought to be pleased. His messages of poverty and peace have inspired grassroots movements outside the church, just like the original Eleven Brothers, to rebel against extinction, tackle inequality, rein in capitalist greed. As this year's United Nations Climate Change Conference comes to a close, its focus on water, clean energy, compensation for poorer nations, and the fate of the planet we live on, Francis's exhortations are more relevant than ever. Here are three stanzas from St. Francis's Canticle of the Creatures that illustrate exactly this. Praised be you, my lord, through sister water, which is very useful and humble and precious and chaste. Praised be you, my lord, through brother fire, through whom you light the night, and he is beautiful and playful and robust and strong. Praised be you, my lord, through sister mother earth, who sustains us and governs us, and who produces varied fruits with colored flowers and herbs. Thank you so much for listening to the fourth episode in our season about mystics. If you enjoy our show, please support us on Patreon. Your patronage will help keep St. Podcast going, as well as give you access to bonus episodes, a behind-the-scenes peek at what we do, and also exclusive St. Podcast merchandise included in your support. Head to www.patreon.com forward slash St. Podcast for details. For images of the artworks, people, and topics mentioned, head to the St. Podcast website, www.saintpodcast.com. Saint is spelled out S-A-I-N-T. You'll notice there's a new shop section on the website. Currently, there are four bag designs and a mug. Have a look. New designs will be added throughout the year. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for updates. And please email us at feedback at saintspodcast.com if you have comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes. Big thanks for Louis Stowell in London, who provided the readings for this episode. Louis is the author of the Loki, A Bad God's Guide series. Follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Louis Stowell, L-O-U-I-E-S-T-O-W-E-L-L. We're excited to have Louis be a part of this episode because her father, an early supporter of St. Podcast, is named Francis. Thank you so much, Frank, for all the encouragement when I first started. All the original music was composed and performed by my friend Stephen Vesecki, a musician and maths teacher in Los Angeles. Have a listen to Stephen's music on his SoundCloud page. The link is on our website. The next episode in Season 2, Mystics, is about a saint whom we met in this episode. She's born an aristocrat and gives up a life of privilege to found one of the first monastic orders for women. Her miraculous ability to hear and even see Mass when she's too ill to attend makes her the patron saint of television. Despite giving her name to countless churches, schools, hospitals, cities, and a county in California nicknamed Silicon Valley, her story and contribution have been obscured by the fame of her mentor, St. Francis. Stay tuned for the story of St. Clair of Assisi, the mighty abbess in the shadows.